Wouldn't I, though? I'd have a stable full of Arabian steeds, rooms piled with books, and I'd ride out of a magic inkstand so that my work should be as famous as Bowery's music. I want to do something splendid before I go into my castle, something heroic or wonderful that won't be forgotten after I'm dead. I don't know what, but I'm on the watch for it, and mean to astonish you all some day. I think I shall write books and get rich and famous. That would suit me. So that is my favorite dream. With this splendid and dreamy quote from Louisa May Alcott's Little Women, we're kicking off the final episode of Lady Fiction for 2021. I'm Stephanie Schaefer, and I'd like to thank you for joining us today. At the beginning of the year, we started off the Lady Fiction podcast with a black girl protagonist who has to leave behind her home and founds a new community in a not-so-remote future, Lauren Oya Olamina from Octavia Butler's Earthseed Parables. Lauren is an unconventional girl, a founding figure, a philosopher, and a writer. And today, as a bookend to 2021, we're turning to a literary classic with a holiday season tradition about the archetype of American girlhood, Jo Marge and her sisters, in Louisa May Alcott's Little Women, which has been described by Madeleine Bedell as the American female myth. A statement which I find so interesting because on the one hand, it stresses the importance of a female rewriting of the white masculine hero in American culture. And on the other hand, Bedell also asserts that myths are sources of cultural identity in the US. And here with me to explore girlhood archetypes and uh, girlish or womanish ambitions is my guest, Amanda Halter. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Steffi. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk about this classic. Before jumping right into the discussion, I'd like to quickly introduce Amanda, an American researching American young adult literature at the Friedrich Schiller University of Jena, where she's a PhD candidate and her dissertation is tentatively titled A Critical Examination of Youth and Nature in Contemporary Young Adult Fiction of the Anthropocene. Amanda holds a, a, a BS in Adolescent English Education from Nyack College in New York U, in the U.S. and an MA in English and American Studies from FSU Jena. She's originally from Wyoming and has worked as a teacher on both sides of the Atlantic. She's also a soccer player in the German Regionalliga Nordost of women's soccer for FFUSV Jena. And I'm so happy she agreed to be my guest in discussing an American classic, Little Women, and so many other issues that pertain to women forging into fields that are often associated with masculine power and masculine identity and um, power plays. So, okay, Amanda, it's great to have you. And before we started um, this podcast today, we talked about the fact that it seems that Little Women is a classic, but it, it's also kind of read predominantly maybe by women. So maybe you can start a little bit by talking us through your own reading experience of the novel as a kid growing up and your returns to it as an American studies researcher. Yeah, so interesting enough, I didn't have the pleasure of reading Little Women as a little woman uh, in the United States as a little girl, which is quite interesting since I grew up with a grandmother who was an English teacher and I got boxes of books at Christmas time. But I don't ever remember reading it as a little girl. I read it maybe the first time in high school and I remember joking in maybe 10th or 11th grade with my fellow soccer players, female soccer players, that this is too feminine and we would never be like these characters from this idealistic image of womanhood. And I kind of shoveled it off and didn't think about it for a long time. But I do have fond memories of, of watching the 1994 film adaptation as a little girl, always around Christmas time and thinking about Winona Ryder playing Joe and seeing it maybe a bit more in a yeah, open-minded aspect than the, the novel had touched me in high school. I picked it up then again shortly before I went to a research trip 
um, from the German side when we went over to visit Walden Pond on a Thoreau research trip. And I had revisited as a 25-year-old woman who at this time was pondering questions of when shall I get married? Shall I? When shall I go on and have children? Shall I not? And surprisingly, the story touched me then in another way that I criticized my 16, 17-year-old self who had read it and criticized it the mm. first time. And I find that mm -hmm. it, it resonates in that way, even for older women and not necessarily only girls. That is so intriguing that you talk about reading it at different stages maybe of your life and being and having very different reactions to it because I think it's a book that you overlook at first sight I read it in my studies and I was unimpressed by it to say the least uh, because I also felt it was too too narrow but it's also a question of identifying um, and then you know jumping over that time lapse from your present to the 1860s and the gender roles back then and then I re I came back to it for my PhD when I was uh, reading another rewriting of Little Women a Pulitzer Prize winning novel from uh, the 2000s Geraldine Brooks's March and I was so intrigued by the liveliness that comes across in the pages, the representation of these four daughters and their mother living together and fending for themselves and looking out for their dreams and coming of age. And then again, on the other hand, you know, realizing that they can't fulfill their dreams. So to me, it was really a standoff or standout from uh, the other 19th century canonical works that I read. Mm -hmm. So from a literary studies perspective, it became super intriguing. Um, you also said that it's a, a bit of a, a holiday classic, and I want to pick you up on that. So it, it has chapters about Christmas, and it seems that Americans return to this book for Christmas. Is that your experience as well? And, and why? Yeah. <laughs> and how do you return to this? I mean, the, the story begins with the first two chapters setting in Christmas. Yeah, the first part of Little Women begins with two chapters of Christmas and ends with two chapters of Christmas. So we have this beginning and ending sort of bookends, so to say, to this narrative that we get. And growing up, especially watching the 1994 film, this image of this homeliness around the fire with your sisters and your family and Christmas time receiving gifts and giving gifts and your father coming home or other family members that might have been away. There's a, a great sense of nostalgia connected to thinking about little women, especially as a Christmas story that you come home even when you go to college or you come home when um, you have your own families and you have this nostalgic connection to sitting around the fire or in contemporary sense, sitting together around the dinner table and talking about the years passing. Um, and I think little women really brings together sort of this nostalgic feeling maybe in, in the American culture about coming together at Christmas time and maybe reflecting on childhood and reflecting on being in a home fam family setting. Mm. I was wondering if, so on the one hand, then it's a circular thing um, that is a, a practice ritual, this Christmas thing where you gather and you talked about what happens, what happened last year. You look back at other different Christmases and It's also supposed, and I'm saying supposed to be a nostalgic event of feeling well together, of community, of simplicity. Of course, you know, we know that families are super complicated and most of the time family reunions don't go so well. Um, so it's also <laughs> an idealized depiction uh, of the Christmas experience, maybe that maybe some people read around Christmas and then they say, oh, my God. I'm going to have to listen to my relative rant over this and this over over Christmas dinner. And it's not it's not going to be like anything in uh, Alcott's novel. But on the other hand, of course, it also uh, becomes a little bit of an allegorical story of what Americans do and how they gather and what constitutes the American, you know, citizenship, because the family is the smallest organizational unit. It's uh, imbued with this nostalgic meaning. And as you said in the novel, uh, we have Christmas as bookends. And this also makes for a positive outlook for the future. So we know whatever happens next year, Christmas is, is coming <laughs> again. A little bit like winter is coming in, uh, in other narratives. But it will come and uh, we will join again and we will 
you know, gather and hopefully remember, have positive memories or negative memories, but it's something that people can hold on to as time flows forward. So let's talk a little bit about the events of the novel for those people who haven't read it. So we know the novel is set in the 1860s, roughly during the Civil War, a time of intense crisis uh, for the US that is also commemorated today in different ways, but it's it's far away from the fighting. So this also highlights this Christmas nostalgia. Definitely. I would say fundamentally that Little Woman is mostly about coming of age. Even though we have this Christmas bookend story, we have mostly a story of coming of age of a central protagonist. But in, a, in an interesting way, it's not about one woman, but many little women, so to say. So we have the story mm. of Meg, Joe, Beth and Amy March, four sisters, and their happenings with childhood into adolescence and then eventually womanhood. And I think the title reflects that really well. Maybe we'll come back to it. Mm -hmm. But the be we, we begin seeing them as children and watch them adapt their dreams and their plans. And they begin to grow up into the adult circumstances. So I think if I would encapsulate Little Women that way, it would be the story of growing up despite poverty, despite the war, despite the challenges in an almost idealistic way. When I watched the film or talk about it with other readers, they the first often comment is that it's too idealistic. There's no way that there are real people that have all of these characteristics and there's no villain in the novel. How can that mm -hmm. be? So we get a very idealistic image of a home of a domestic state with four little girls growing up. And it's interesting because the, the war really is absent in so many ways. So there's no no Terra really present other than maybe the fear for their father who is closely modeled on Louisa May Alcott's own father as the family is modeled on her own family so it's semi-autobiographical and the father has uh, volunteered as a union minister and has gone away and joined the fighting because he was too old to be drafted in the war so of course they're concerned and in the course of the novel there's news that he's injured and marmy the mother has to rush to his bedside to washington dc where he's being taken care of so this domestic bliss is almost a beautiful bubble if i can use that word that happens despite the knowledge that you know the father is away in peril that there's fighting and some critics have also pointed out that there's an absence of the main conflict around the civil war, namely the question of, of slavery and um, that the novel is a very domestic white novel. So there are next to no references to any people of color. Also, it's set in the Northeast, where, of course, there were uh, freed persons and um, it's set in the intellectual backdrop of Concord, Massachusetts. The very node of American culture in the 1840s to 60s, the origins to, of the American Renaissance movement. And so this is almost as if, you know, voluntarily, voluntarily turning a blind eye to the conflict that's happening and returning to the smallest comfort that you can get, namely a stable home. And it does have reflections on this poverty discourse. So the, the marches are relatively poor, but only comparatively poor. They're poor compared to their super rich neighbor. And Laurie, who is the orphaned grandson of the estate owner, but they're comparatively well off when we look at their poor next door neighbors, uh, a German family who are living in poverty and with whom they share their um, their Christmas breakfast. So again, it's a, it's a navigating of ups and downs and a situating in in the middle of these historical events that and in the middle of American society at this point. So the four daughters are, of course, uncommon, maybe for girls of their time or what we would imagine uh, girls of their time would do, because they each have a, an individual talent and the question is, can they can they render this talent a reality in, as they grow up? And together they make up, so these talents mix, they make up really a claim for, for the arts <laughs> uh, and for artistic activity. So you said there's no heroine. Do you think Joel, the oldest, is a main protagonist or maybe more in the center than others? And why? Um, I think it's a hard question. I think Louisa, of course, chose to make it semi-autobiographical in a sense that she wrote about really 
herself and her three sisters in real life. And a lot of the events come from her sister passing away, her trials and errors being a writer, her other sister's trials with trying to become a great artist. So we see these realities that in, in connections to her life. And in a way, she sets herself maybe as a protagonist. But I think as a reader, we're offered four different sorts of, of girlhood, so to say, four different girls that we could identify with, whether or not we're a quiet, musically inclined a young female or one who um, maybe has more inclinations towards clothing or, or the external beauty of, of how you look. So I, I think that on the one hand, little woman has four protagonists, and we could all identify with all four of them. But in a way, she also sets Joe absolutely, I think, in the center with the question of her authorship and writing and the, the special struggles that she has with gender roles and with trying to complete the tasks at hand that society puts to her versus her own personal interests and desires. Um, so I would say in a sense that Joe absolutely is the protagonist, but I think we can all identify in different ways at different points in our lives with the different women. Growing up in middle school, wanting to try to make your external fit into society, wearing the right clothing, as Meg does when she wants to buy dresses, which are the latest fashion mm. at the time. Or being someone who wants to do the homely duties and, and taking care of your brothers and sisters or cleaning up at home in the way that Beth does. Yeah, So each of the girls offer in a way our own identification. Uh, in the text, in mm. a sense. Yeah. And it's interesting to say that the novel is not told from a first-person perspective. So we have insights into all different experiences, so to speak. Uh, we read about their emotions and their emotional outbreaks. So there's also a lot of drama in the March household. But Joe gets the main focus. Uh, but we do have a narrative, authoritative narrative maybe, or commentator who uh, sometimes brings out The important points when uh, we encounter these these um, conflicts between the two. So Joe is described as a tomboyish, the most tomboyish uh, among the four. And when we go back to the description, how are the girls described specifically Joe? Yeah, so um, we have a third person omniscient narrator who interjects and tells us exactly how the girls look. Yeah. And um, throughout the novel, we get comments from her family members, but mostly from this third person narrator. For example, she's called as having blunt manners and a too independent uh, spirit. She questions at one point in, in the first part saying, why weren't we all boys? Then we wouldn't be such a bother. So we, we see this characterization of her as a sort of tomboy figure throughout the novel by way of the omniscient narrator who's telling you how she thinks and acts, but also by way of her actions and her words, as well as what others have to say about her. So very often um, her family members comment on her boyish actions. For example, when the father comes home at the end of the book, he says, quote, I rather miss my wild girl, but if I get a strong, helpful, tender-hearted woman in her place, I shall feel quite satisfied. Mm -hmm. So in one way, we have a narrator who tells us about her as a tomboy. We also see some sort of familial acceptance of it, that she's just how she is. She's this wild Joe. But then we also have kind of running in the background um, this expectation that's put on in the first chapter by the father uh, in his first letter saying, I... I hope to come home to find that they are. I'm more proud and fond of my little women. And this theme is picked mm -hmm. up again in the end when the father returns and says, oh, you are wild, but I would still be happy if you would become a young woman and I would be then satisfied. And that's where the title comes from, right? It's not uh, an invention of Joe or her sisters. It's an invention of the father who is so blatantly absent, but who sends letters and uh, in those letters calls his daughters to grow up and grow up well. So it's also a, a, an intense narrative of disciplining that we read about. And that's, I think, where my student self have found issues with this, because as you said, the father writes, uh, while we wait for his return, we may all work. And I want to be fonder and prouder of my little women. So he already says, you will be women, Right now, you are little women, but you will grow into something. So we have that futurity narrative, but he really seeks to direct how they grow. And he gives uh, them the term of the bosom enemy. So he says, the enemies you have to fight are 
the enemies inside yourself, your weaknesses. And of course, every girl has a weakness. So Joe has her temper. Beth says, confesses after they read this letter that he sends. Beth confesses that uh, she uh, is too shy. Amy is too too outgoing and too selfish. And Meg says, oh, I'm too much given to pretty dresses. So the girls all know their faults and they start disciplining themselves, aided by the mom, by Marmy, who oversees this and who in the key scene also talks to Joe about uh, that she also has a temper and she is she's angry every day, but she has learned to master it. And that's, I think, a point where you can you can either say, okay, I do understand that, you know, you can't always behave as a kid. Uh, when you grow up, you do have to, to change a bit and maybe become more palatable, more adaptable. So in the novel, each of the girls is subjected to a certain body discipline where they have to literally rein in their weaknesses to become mature women. Also women that are become good wives in the second part. And that's where I, as a reader, maybe as a young reader, had a problem because I thought, okay, why do girls have to be fenced in? Why do they have to be subjected to this taming of their instincts um, in order to make what kind of womanish ideal when they're grown up? And that's, of course, the ideal of the housewife um, that they are supposed to become. And one of the four actually becomes a mother. Um, then there's more marriage stories. But again, the question is, what does Joe do? So maybe we can also talk about poetic justice. Is it okay to be, be a spinster? Is it okay to say no to a suitor? And what does the novel have to offer yeah. to us in this regard? I think structurally, I would like to mention that Little Women, though, often we encounter it, especially in popular culture, just under this one title of Little Women, is actually two parts. Louisa May Alcott wrote Little Women at uh, the request of her publisher, who said, I want a girl's narrative. And she was a bit uh, against it and wrote in her diaries that she didn't think she could write anything worth of interest to young girls. She wrote it, and then to her bemusement, it was extremely popular, selling 2,000 copies in the first couple of weeks, becoming a literary sensation. And it required her then, due to the number of letters that uh, her readers had sent, I want to know what happens to the women. I want to, I want to know. At the end of the first part, none of them are, are married. We only have one proposal. And they all want to know if she's go if they're going to get married or die, so to say, as was the yeah, two, that's two the fates. Choices they have. Yeah. The two fates of the women. And so we get the second part, and I think that provides a nice contrast to the first part being about childhood, about being a, a young girl. Um, the second part was published only three months later and is entitled Good Wives. And I think this is is a good point to, to point out that even though we see this entire story as little women, it actually provides a great contrast between nostalgic childhood and womanhood. And we see this trajectory then finally only closing out in the second part when Meg marries Mr. Brooke. Beth unfortunately dies, so she is the one character that doesn't, so to say, achieve uh, womanhood. And Amy, of course, marries the neighborhood friend Lori. And, so, and um, she marries rich. That's important. She marries rich. Yeah. Yes. You have Meg who marries poor and, of course, doesn't necessarily want to marry Mr. Brooke in the beginning, but she only does it in spite of the Aunt March, who says, if you marry poor, I'm not going to give you an inheritance. And in sort of to spite this attitude from her aunt, she says, well, then I will marry. I'll prove her wrong, so to say, that I can be happy in being poor. You have Amy who marries rich and Joe was supposed to be in the eyes of the readers, she should have married Laurie. Louisa May Alcott received numerous letters demanding mm -hmm. that Joe, as the girl <laughs> next door, marries the boy next door um, mm -hmm. and wanted that to happen. But as Louisa May Alcott herself in real life actually never married, she provides space within the text to this idea of the spinster. And I think that's one of the passages which really spoke to me reading this text in my mid-twenties. Yeah, There's a passage where the third-person omniscient narrator says, girls, be kind to the 25-year-old who's not married. And 30, it won't be the end, so to say. I can't quote the passage exactly. Mm -hmm. But she provides the space to saying, it's okay to not get married. It's okay to not live up to the sort of social standard that your sisters have. And 
to maybe our surprise then, we could talk about the ending, but maybe to our surprise then, Joe does get married. But I would say to an unsuspecting suitor or maybe an untypical mm-hmm. suitor in that sense. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's two things I'd quickly like to talk about in this context. One is, is something that I discovered in the text. And then the other one is what Greta Gerwig does with the film adaptation uh, from uh, 2020. So the question is, of course, if Joe is going to be the tomboy and is if these she's She's actually a figure of identification for many, many women artists throughout Western history. I read a quote by Simone de Beauvoir, who said uh, she identified with Joe because she was so intellectual, brusque and bony. She would sit in the tree and read her book up there. And you, of course, we, of course, know that Simone de Beauvoir went on and, and founded her own model of, of, of feminism and uh, fought her own fight for equality. So... Joe is this transgressive figure also. She doesn't marry or it looks like she doesn't marry for a long time. Then it's a bit of a surprise. Uh, she is independent, economically independent, like Louisa May Alcott also was. She nourishes she's the breadwinner of the family. Um, and the question is, how is this staged? And how does Joe talk about it herself? So in the novel, there's a scene where she talks to her mom, Uh, to Marmy about reigning in her temper and the difficulties after fighting with Amy where she wants to cry and I'm quoting Joe wanted to lay her head down on that motherly bosom and cry her grief and anger all away but tears were an unmanly weakness and she felt so quietly uh, so deeply injured that she really couldn't quite forgive yet so she winked hard shook her head and said gruffly It was an abominable thing and she doesn't deserve to be forgiven. So tears for her are an unmanly weakness. This is a quote where we find out that she's actually trying to be boyish. She's actually trying to be manly and crying in this context, specifically in her mom's bosom, would be something girlish in our contemporary sense (laughs) of that word, uh, something that only girls do. Yeah. Boys don't cry, but girls apparently do in this context. So she's trying to become something that, you know, what, what she thinks is mannish or boyish. And you also had this opening quote where she says, I wish we could be boys. And in the, in Greta Gerwig's film adaptation, which was discussed quite a bit, um, on, uh, the different, in the different net, networks and, and platforms, we see this becoming of an author and her running free as a focus. And she entangles the story of the writer herself with the story that she writes throughout. And until the end, it's not so clear what will happen. There's two different endings, which we can't give away here. But in the end, she asserts her right to the copyright and asserts also a a manly notion of literary genius and of authorship. So it's an important notice of propriety, of copyright, where the, her editor always, almost wants to convince her to give the copyright up so he can make all the money and uh, he wants to pacify her and send her away. And she says, no, I'll take the copyright. And that's what Greta Gerwig, the uh, director, has made uh, in her rewriting of Little Women, of this figure. So it really becomes a contest of either you're a housewife or you're an author and there's not so much in between uh (laughs) yeah in this film version that is a contemporary version of little women i think also um the point that you brought up right now about gender norms and we talked already about joe being this kind of tomboy character throughout the text Uh, it provides in a way a trajectory for female readers to see that there are other possibilities of femininity so to say that it can fit within this realm you don't have to wear frills and paint but you can also go outside and romp around in her trousers she says and I I find what's absolutely beautiful and fascinating is when you watch Gehrig's 2019 adaptation if you pay closely attention the actress who plays Joe actually ends up wearing more and more of Laurie's clothes towards the end of mm-hmm. the movie. And so you begin to see that she plays with this idea of clothing and outward expression of what it means to be feminine and what it means to be a young girl. And we we might say, okay, Joe maybe doesn't necessarily conform to the gender norms in terms of how she looks and speaks. But then there's this question of, 
through her writing, does she, does she maybe sort of establish that as being a womanly trait? Because throughout the entire text, we get this, this question of Joe, the stories you're writing are not really your voice. Yeah, she writes stories of thrash and thunder, of stories of, of, of um, murder and plays with swords and, and very thriller-esque sort of stories. And, and quite often the feedback is, oh, Joe, can't you write something of your own voice? And in the end, the moment that Professor Bears, so to say, her mentor and the man that she adores, accepts her voice and accepts the text that he finds most representative of her, I think this, in a way, it represents that Joe is able to find her own voice, to find her truth. And maybe if we bring this out of the text uh, in, in, into maybe a larger meta meta reading, that writing is in a space and a place for women to to create their voice. And I think this is also very evident in the 2019 film that through writing, Greta Gerwig is saying that women can have a voice and women can have a role. And I think especially in the 2019 film, it brings out the question of um, how male-dominated is, is Hollywood and how male-dominated is the literary realm of publishing and producing films. Um, mm. So we can see these sort of trajectories and relevancies from the 1860s to the present day, over 150 years later. And that what makes, that's what makes the story so enduring and so relevant mm. still. And it's interesting to see, of course, returning to the question of whiteness, specifically with Tugervik's film, that, you know, lots of viewers said this is not up to date. She doesn't, there are no um, people of color featured in the film, despite the fact that there are some, you know, in public spaces. Caitlin Greenwich uh, has talked about this on the New York Times Review, and she uh, calls this representation in the film as a bearable whiteness, because... Of course, on the one hand, empathy. So, what black girl readers might be felt might feel coerced into having empathy with white girls in this novel. But Greenwich argues that Gerwig's film is a quote piece of art that acknowledges it is about the worldview of a very specific person, but it doesn't declare the worldview is the best and only one. And that's where she says it's an intense focus on um, Joe and her own point of view. But there are, of course, many over overwrought other point of, points of view that also get introduced in the in the film. And that's kind of not the kind of feeling that I had in the novel. So I think uh, Garvey is doing a good job in updating it. And what the point that I wanted to make with this is that what struck me when I watched Garvey's film is that there's so much performativity in there. So the girls perform... And they play. They're often at play. Most of the time, they're really not so serious. They fight, you know, like kids over one thing that they want. Um, and they start play acting early on. And that's a scene that's directly taken from the novel and that Gerwig really, you know, spells out lavishly uh, upstairs in the attic where um, of Orchard House, an iconic house that you can visit still today to, to make some people cry uh, when they <laughs> walk in. So... Upstairs is the attic, the attic and the, the room that she has for herself where they start play acting and staging plays and they um, model themselves on members of the Pickwick Club and talk in debating voices. Uh, and there's no trouble with girls dressing up as boys in this play. So it really doesn't matter so much. And as you pointed out, as Jo transforms herself from a, a young girl with a penchant for writing into a young writer wearing pants and big hats more and more often, it's also not that much of a problem, really. You know, this is portrayed as much more fluid and performative and also something that is fun than, uh, you know, a, a, a staunch feminist criticism, maybe also my own criticism, but I was a student, would attribute to this. So she really argues that it's it's fun and play and it's okay for those girls to do that. And of course, this is also a sense of privilege that they are allowed to do this by their parents, by their father who says, but you have to be pious and you have to be dutiful. But the mother allows it. And even the father says, I want my wild Joe, but please be somebody that, you know, is socially not super awkward. <laughs> so... It's not such a problem at the end of the day, uh, the gender divide. 
it's more what we read into it maybe going back from a contemporary point of view and how this interacts also with the with the literature of its time so this one thing that maybe we can turn to a little bit is the reception and i know you have a specialty in young adult fiction so at the beginning, as you said, Alcott was commissioned to write a text about girls. She was interested in writing murder mysteries and uh, more saucy things that are less uh, attributable to uh, female writers at that time. So she also had a pen name. But when she started writing this, it became an immediate hit and she found her voice. And it was, of course, marketed as a girl's novel. And only recently, fairly recently, rediscovered and reinserted into the, that weird thing, the American canon, as an important text. So how would you read this as a young adult novel from your perspective? I think what's quite interesting when we talk about young adult fiction is that it is it is a category or a concept that's created by society. It's not something that's exactly just existing. Rather, we determine what is fiction for young people. And this entire idea didn't even erupt until after Alcott's time. So this time of adolescence between being a child and being an adult wasn't actually really popularized until the early 20th century, around 1900, 1903. So this idea of being something in between this transition phase wasn't quite popularized or quite common. And If we read this lens of saying we have this distinct uh, biological phase growing up from a child to an adult and all of these social and economic struggles that have to do with that phase, we could say that she already, she knew that. She was before her time, so to say, before the science began to kind of describe this. And I think when you look back and read uh, Little Women through this lens of classifying it not as a child's novel, but as an adolescent or young adult fiction, it really does describe the struggle from growing up, from being a young person and having to sort of amend yourself or make compromises for the social uh, expectations and, and the societal circumstances. And in a way, young adult fiction then overlaps and sometimes encompasses the Bildungsroman, of course, a literary tradition which is about going out into the yeah. world, being challenged by society only to come home and establish yourself. And I think, especially when you read then Little Women through this sort of coming of age, Bildungsroman, young adult fiction, it becomes a tool of didactic lessons, of, of teaching young people to grow up in a particular way, um, and not just young people, but young girls to grow up in a particular way. It's sort of a moral code or an instruction manual of how to behave, to go on your pilgrim's progress, so to say, in order to achieve some sort of standards that society, your family has for you. And I think in that way, Little Women can be criticized in the sense that it points this all too often omniscient narrator finger at the young reader about what the expectations of society are. And we can read it in that way that it might be suppressing or it might be overbearing to a young person. And maybe that was its turn off for me in high school that I didn't mm -hmm. want to read. I'd being told how to act. But I think if you step back from this young adult literature category that we try to put on these texts, there is a subtext of independence, of ingenuity, of thinking for oneself. And it is a subtext. And I think that's because we have to read the text in its context when it was created. Louisa May Alcott had expectations due to the time period that she's wrote in. There were expectations from readers, from the editors, from her family, from the society around her. If she would have written that Joe didn't get married, would the text have ever been published? It's hmm. a question we would never know. We won't know the answer to. But in that way, I think young adult fiction provides a critical lens on the text. And if you remove that lens and really notice maybe the other subtexts underneath of it, you see the text maybe in a more positive light and not so critical. And what I find so intriguing is the didactic function, which is there avant la lettre, as you said. So so young adult fiction was only invented or maybe also marketed to uh, people growing up um, in the 1900s. So the didactic surfaces in the very beginning of the novel when the girls play out the pilgrim's progress an allegorical narrative that's also an, a narrative of instruction. And Alcott chooses a variation of Banyan's text for opening her own preface. So she starts by saying, Go then, my little book, and show to all that entertain and bid thee welcome shall, what thou dost keep close shut 
up in thy breast. And then he goes on, um, this is from John Bunyan, um, he goes on to talk about the, the purposes of the book. And this is where Alcott takes a variation. So, she is one who early hath her pilgrimage begun. Ye let young damsels learn of her to prize the world which is to come and be so wise, for little tripping maids may follow God along the ways which saintly feet have trod. So for young people to follow the path, it's pretty, pretty ob obvious. But this is young damsels who should learn of mercy's prize and little tripping maids who are growing up to be God-abiding citizens. And there's a yanking together of Christian religion and uh, ritual practice and the allegorical story that also tells we you shall build a nation here. So the 1860s with the Civil War raging uh, and the question of the Union, it's of course a, a period of intense peril for the national imagination where lots of writers were imagining this. And Louisa May Alcott was in the middle of it. But going back to the Banyan quote that she uh, changes to young damsels and little tripping maids. This is a play that the girls play and where they learn about the, the burdens that they carry, so their own weaknesses. Um, it's a play where they are oriented towards a future and say we will reach the celestial city, that's the pilgrim's progress, and we will be better eventually than we are right now. We will learn to master our weaknesses and we will be better. But they do it in play. So it it's a it's a great example for indoctrination on the one hand and on the other hand for um, really horsing around and uh, not caring so much about this. Mm. And that's also an intricate part of a young adult novel. So there are stories told and then you take an example from them or you act them out or you, you're deviant from them a little bit. I mean, it also picks up on the... Yeah, the, the long time standing question of is fiction there to educate or to entertain? And young adult literature quite often, um, in its early tradition in the United States, for example, the Stratemeyer Syndicate dealing with Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys, they were great adventure tales, but there was always still this third person narrator over the top giving moral lessons and aiding, um, in the, the direction of the young people who were reading the texts. And little women, um, especially in, in the realm of young adult literature is sort of this pioneering work for this idea that domestic fiction and fiction which has to deal with home life could also serve a function to instructing young people to fill those home life roles to eventually mm. go from being the child to being this adult that fulfills the circle the cycle and i think when we talked about in the beginning that the novel begins and ends at the hearth begins and ends at christmas this fiction this fictional work does a great job of setting up the cycle of here are the adults that teach the lessons, so to say, this narrator. And those young people will learn those lessons, achieve the sort of standard, and then give the lesson on again. So it's a very circular pattern of trying to maintain norms and maintain certain values and ethics. And in Little Women, there's no direct Protestant uh, declaration that these lessons come from the Bible, but it's a very clear sort of connection to Protestant Christianity and the values and lessons that the father writes about in the letters and the texts that they read and the sort of discourse that the mother and the daughters then use in the text. Yeah. So when we talk about context, it's even maybe more uh, important to mention quickly that the Alcots, of course, were part of the Concord Lights, uh, part of a very tight-knit society and community of, of writers who had a an ambition to start a new American literature tradition, the American Renaissance. So Alcott's father, Amos Bronson Alcott, was a reformer given to social experiments. Uh, he made the family live at Fruitlands at some point where they basically tried to be sustainable um, and tried to sustain themselves. And this magically failed <laughs> and he had other many other experiments that would always fail and he would often depend on money from other people uh, that he was talking to about his ideas so he is the figure that looms above and between the lines of little women and um, while in Little Women in itself father is away fighting and he sends those instructive letters asking the girls to become to remain pious and master their bosom enemies. In real life, there was a, a material uh, materialist pressure exerted on 
Louisa May Alcott to actually nourish the family because her father Amos, who also fought in the Civil War at some point, was really too much of a philosopher to be able to look after his four little women. And this is subject to feminist rewritings. For instance, the novel March by Geraldine Brooks, which won the 2005 Pulitzer Prize. It's actually the story of the father, the March father, away at the fighting and uh, the adventures that he has to go through while um, his little women are at home celebrating Christmas without him. And this, in this feminist rewriting, we encounter this philosopher with high ideals uh, who has no knack of actually survival. He is also broken by his philosophies that he sees failing in the face of slavery in the face of when he travels to southern plantations and in his own love interest when he meets his teenage love again a uh, liberated former enslaved woman who tends to him as a nurse in the washington hospitals so for some reason little women as a story surfaces again and again and problematizes different aspects of american culture so it's not a text that can only be seen inside its conquered intellectual settings and the material versus the spiritual thinking related to it. But it, it comes back again and again and again uh, in American popular culture. There's mentions of it. You see over and over in Disney series, you see a school teacher reading it for Christmas. We have the movie versions from the 90s and the most recent one there and we have all those film editions in english seven, seven film editions seven film editions it's even mentioned in friends where two characters talk about their favorite books and they end up reading little women so it's it's a popular culture icon all over the united states um you find it in films in in, in 30 or 40 television yeah. series uh, renditions so it's it's lasting legacy is truly um i would say yeah, the American novel, but that's of course a question <laughs> for discussion, um, which is which is quite yeah. interesting. I wanted to mention to go back what you were saying about Concord and the intellectuals in this time. We can't forget that Louisa May Alcott grew up around Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson, so two mm -hmm. great writers and thinkers of this time period as her neighbors. There's also speculation that Louisa had a crush on Thoreau and on Emerson, and that the mm -hmm. character Laurie, who becomes her childhood friend, who actually doesn't exist in real life, could have been based in some way by either of those love interests or these unattainable elderly men that she was fascinated with. So she grew up in this realm of, of really intellectual and forward thinking. So it's no surprise to me that she then in her writing goes on to bring up some sort of topics which might not have been fitting at the time, considering the people that she grew up around in. I mean, imagine growing up around Emerson and Thoreau as your neighbors would mm -hmm. also be no surprise that you have some sort of progressive thinking. Yeah. And this surfaces in the text, but it also surfaces in the in the re reworkings, in the films, in the different mentions. It's always the reference point that uh, you go back to the big question. And that it's interesting that you, you call this the great American novel because this is such an American literary history debate, what the great American novel would be. But it might be a nice antidote to what many people agree is a great American novel of the 19th century, namely Moby Dick. So this would be going down a different road. But this is the ultimate domestic fiction. And it's not related to any mobility narratives. Um, and it's not uh, adventurous. Um, it's really the grist and grit of every day and the, jo the little joys of the home that are celebrated in there. So it's no surprise that it's resurfacing over and over always imbued with this attachment, but it's related to the conquered lights. And it's imbued with that notion of growing up and, and following your, your instincts and uh, following your wishes and your talents and making the best out of yourself. It's also the narrative of the American self-made woman. Absolutely. And I've um, when I visit the Orchard House, I remember reading little anecdotes about how the text touched the lives of many of its readers that some of the readers come back to the text again and again in their childhood where they have torn and tattered versions that they read with their classmates at recess or on the weekends. And I know that some of my friends had made their own Pickwick clubs and enjoyed to play around and pretend to be gentlemen or uh, make literary magazines. So there is some sort of 
I, I think nostalgic desire to attach yourself to this narrative, to think back on childhood and the fond memories. But also other readers, including myself, look at this text and say, it's not just about a nostalgic childhood, but there's some real material you know, relevance to the, the questions that we face as adults. What sort of what sort of compromises are we willing to give up? Our artistic impulses, our personal hobbies and interests, which may be considered too masculine or too unattainable for the position, state, class, race, what have you, um, in your contemporary situation. So you would follow Madeleine Bedell, who says it's it's the American female myth. I I think I think in a great way that. The text, on some hand, balances this idea of, of a female attainment, of a female status that is expected or wanted within a society at a particular time, while at the same time, it provides space for the imagination to think about your creative impulses, your personal interests. And mm -hmm. in that way, if it is the myth of the American household woman or the American ingenuity and American... yeah. American ingenuity and American uh, ability to think beyond uh, the the limitations. I think the text in that way balances both and can be seen then as the great American myth of fitting and or subverting standards. Mm. Thank you. I think that's a great closing statement. It's also, I think, a good closing statement for the first series of Lady Fiction. As I said, we explored books by women authors, American women authors and Canadian on various topics uh, from various times throughout the year. And I'm so happy that we can conclude with this all-time favorite and with Amanda as my guest. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.